Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Julie Gould and this is Working Scientist. This is the second part of our series all about technology and we're exploring how the technologies are affecting scientists, research and universities. In the first episode, we heard all about artificial intelligence from Mark Dodgson and Lee Cronin and how it may or may not change the way that universities operate. In this episode, we're going to go back to basics and look at why a skill like computer coding is so vital for any researcher in academia, ranging from the biological sciences to agricultural studies, even to old English literature. So I asked Jeff Perkel, the Nature Technology Editor, why he thought that being able to code was a useful skill for a scientist. So much research right now involves manipulating data and the it's possible to open up your data files in Excel and work with them in a program that has like a point and click interface and manipulate them. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But the trick is that if you go through a whole bunch of steps and figure out a way to do something and then you really like it and then you want to do it again because you do the same experiments a month later and you say, I want to make that same graph again, that's hard. And one of the things that coding can really that to me makes coding so powerful is that you can, if instead of using that point of point and click interface, if you figure out how to do those manipulations by basically writing programming scripts to do them for you, then all you have to do to run them again is change the name of the file that you work it on. And we had a feature last year on the problem of computational reproducibility, to which this really sort of feeds into this notion that you can do something once and you can make it work, but if you're going to be doing it again and again and again, you're just making life more difficult for yourself if you don't figure out a way to sort of automate that process. So all you have to do is say, run this script, and it's going to take your data and do the same thing to it. Brian McNamee is a lecturer in computer science at the University College Dublin, and he's also the director of the SFI Centre for Research Training and Machine Learning. And he believes that because technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning are becoming more prominent, it's really important for researchers from all disciplines to learn to code. The challenge for us, again, is to think about, well, how do we redesign and change our training programmes so that we're equipping people to do the kind of science that they're going to do in the future. So to give one example of that, in University College Dublin, we introduced a programme called the Minor in Data Science um, a couple of years ago. The idea behind that is the way our structures work is students do a particular major degree 
Um, but now alongside that, they can also do this minor in data science. So they can have a qualification in data science. Our aim is to push that out all across the university because the one of the interesting things around data science, machine learning, data analytics is we can apply these techniques to basically any area ranging from the humanities and study of old English novels uh, right up to, to, let's say, chemistry and astrophysics. Um, and by having this qualification on the side, one of the places where we've seen particular um, enthusiasm for it is in the wet sciences, where the people basically running those degree programs are recognizing that their students are not spending are not likely to end up spending their time doing, let's say, lab bench work of the pipetting of solutions into beakers. But the more interesting work they're doing now is on the far side of that process where they're looking at what does the data from a big job like that tell us. So what those people need are essentially data, data science skills. So how do they collect data? How do they manage and manipulate that data? How do they then analyze that data to allow them to come to well-grounded conclusions um, and drive their science through those well-rounded conclusions. So one of the challenges I think for the universities is to look across basically across all of our science programs and say well where is where is data having an impact here and therefore what are the skills that people need now to, to be a part of that to maximize that impact and to make sure that we're training them with those skills. Why is it so important for people who are interested in working with data yeah. why do they need to learn to code? Yeah so it's a that's a good question. It's one that we struggle with a little bit and we kind of flip-flop back and forth on. So I think it's I think it's a really good idea for people to learn to code. And I think it's a really good idea because it gives them the biggest freedom and flexibility. So now they don't need anyone else in order to do whatever it is that they want to do. So it puts them right in touch with their data. It puts them right in touch with an enormous range of packages that will allow them to do different kinds of data analysis, work with different kinds of data sets, um, produce different kinds of outputs from the analysis on those data sets. What's interesting is that we're at the point now where people are saying, well, what can we start to do with that data? And the sort of, let's say, easier to use tools than code haven't quite caught up with that. A lot of those easy to use tools are commercial tools that you have to spend quite a bit of money on those tools will then point you in a particular way to analyze data, a particular way to think about data. The big advantage of code is, well, you have the, the most flexibility um, in doing whatever it is you want to do with this data. So if you come up with a new way to look at your problem through data, you can write the code to do that, whereas you might struggle to find a, a nice GUI-based application that would be able to do that for you already. So I think that's the big advantage, that you can now unlock any data and you can look at that data in any way that you want once you can start to write some code. So really, people are now using the code to create their own tools. Exactly, yeah. And that's the evolution that we'll see, that basically as people will think of new ways to look at data, they'll write code, they'll build tools, then other people will start to just use those tools as they go along. But we're at that kind of exciting place now where people are figuring out, Okay, given this new kind of data, given these new kind of questions that I want to ask of this data, what is the right way to do that and what's the tool to build that? And there's great creativity and excitement about how people come up with new ways to look at data. And one such person who had to learn to code was Jess Hedge. And until March this year, she was a postdoc working on infectious disease evolution, which involved a lot of genome sequence analysis of bacteria and viruses. Her work meant that she needed to spend a lot of time analysing and managing huge data sets. 
But before she started out on this type of research, Jess had never done any coding and she was quite reluctant to do it. But needs must, and she was thrown in the deep end and had to learn fast to make sure that she could do her work. So during my PhD, I was using software that other people were developing. And I suppose my first taste of coding was really trying to understand their code. And I never really saw myself as a coder, or I, but it took me a long time. I was very reluctant. It took me a long time to realise that I'm going to have to pick up these skills myself. Um, and so because I was trying to understand this software, which was written in Java, I kind of went in at the deep end, to be honest. And so my first experience of coding was um, probably not a great one. And I was put off. Uh, and it wasn't until a lot of my colleagues and peers were using different coding languages, things like Python and R, that I saw the potential for it to really help my work. Um, and as you say, we're now in an era of big data. And I think no matter what you're doing in biology and also in the sciences more general, you're going to have to be able to wrangle your data and clean it up. And being able to code in Python and R and even Bash is a great place to start. So how did you teach yourself? Well, a combination of things, really. It wasn't a particularly well thought out plan of this is how I'm going to learn how to code. As I say, it started off learning Java, which didn't go very well, but it did get me thinking like a computer, which I think is really important for learning how to code. You know, you really have to be explicit in the instructions that you're giving to the computer. Can you give an example of, of the level of explicitness? You can't really make any assumptions. So even if you're doing something as simple as renaming 200 files. So if you've missed something and haven't specified the exact folder in which you want to rename all your files, you might end up renaming everything in that whole series of folders on your computer system. So and the, the computer won't guess that you want to do it just in a specific directory. So you'd have to be really clear. So when you were learning how to code, did you go to online resources or did you ask friends for support or, you know, colleagues and peers for their help? Yeah, I suppose when I really got stuck in was just after a course I did, a kind of introductory course to Python, which was actually run in the institution that I was working in by another colleague, so a, a more senior postdoc or lecturer, I think. And uh, this was quite an intensive course, so it was two weeks, but it was with peers who I could then approach after the course as well, which I think is really important that you have a kind of buddy that you can go to and ask for help, just a second pair of eyes on your code. So there, um, although it was two weeks, it was really just picking up four or five basic things, so for loops, if loops, um, lists, just these dictionaries, these structures, which are the basics. And once I had them under my belt, I was off, really. Uh, and that's all it took, really. And I think one of the reasons that that course was such a success for me was that I was able to bring along a project with me. So I was already working on a problem that I wanted to address use, using some kind of coding or programming language and I but I didn't know how to do it so taking along that project and that data set meant that I had lots of different pairs of eyes looking at it with me and I could work out you know how is this coding language going to be of relevance to me. So you've mentioned a few different languages already you've mentioned Java, Python, R. I imagine there well there are lots of different computing code, computer coding languages. What well how do you how do you choose which one's the best one to start with? I mean, there are some languages which are better for um, software development. But for me, I really wanted something that would help me clean up big data sets, you know, even renaming things in, in files um, rather than trying to do this by hand in Excel. Uh, and then, so that's why I started with Python. I, alluded, I do a lot of my data wrangling in that. Um, 
And then I learned R because it's a great, it's, it's designed for doing statistical analyses, but it's also brilliant at plotting results and graphs and figures and doing a lot of data visualization. And then Bash, I use that for basically stringing together command line tools, so bits of software that you can run from the command line um, that can basically do the analysis from start to finish without me having to intervene, which means that the analysis can run pretty much overnight or during the day while I'm getting on with something else. So all of these tools help me to be more efficient as a researcher. Which is ultimately the goal of all yes. this software development and coding. Exactly. Earlier this year, you you left academic research and you moved to a staff development role at the Nuffield Department for Clinical Neuroscience in Oxford. Now, you spent a lot of time teaching yourself and coding and working hard to, to you know, get all the tools that you needed to do your research. So you've got this huge skills base and this knowledge. Do you think you'll be able to apply any of that knowledge in your new role? Definitely. Um, so my new role is going to be analysing a lot of data um, about staff in our department. And um, I think basically having these skills and this confidence to be able to analyse any data set with this set of tools is a real benefit. I now feel comfortable with data set of any size and any type of kind of messy data because I know that I have the skills um, from my coding experience to be able to get that data in a format in which I can analyse it properly and also visualise the results, which is is arguably um, just as important. Do you have any advice for anyone who is an early career researcher who might be coming up with, you know, facing some challenges within their research where they might need some coding skills, coding advice? From my experience, the most important things would be to try and find a course to go on, some kind of workshop. It might not it might not work straight away. I had to go on a couple to get into that mindset um, and also to find the right language for the sort of for the work that you're doing as well. And perhaps try and find a mentor or a buddy, someone in your department or group or wider university that you can kind of check in with occasionally and check that you're doing things right. And don't be worried if you spend all your time Googling errors and bugs, because that's all part of the learning process, I think, for coding. There's so much out there already. And I can guarantee that there's probably an answer out there to every question that you can come up with at this stage of coding anyway. Thanks to Brian McNamee from University College Dublin and Jess Hedge from the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neuroscience in Oxford. Now next week we'll look a little more at coding and Jeff Pakel, the Nature Technology Editor, will have a chat with Harriet Alexander who has run a coding course in Antarctica. Access to the internet is significantly slower and more limited down in Antarctica than it is at a university where I would have taught back up in the States. So the primary problem that I ran into was being able to access the course materials and trying to download the software programs that we needed for people to be able to run these materials on their own machines, which is a primary goal of software carpentry. And we'll also hear from Simon Hetrick, who is the Deputy Director of the Software Sustainability Institute and the founding chair of the Research Software Engineers Association. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.